morning, church. Good to see you. Go ahead and uh, reach for your Bibles. Get them open uh, in front of you to Revelation 1, continuing on in this series. And I want you to, as you're doing that, I want you to think about uh, some um, awesome thing in your life. I want you to think about some awesome thing that you have going on in your life. And the answer is no doubt, some of the things that you might uh, think about are um, your children. You might think about your children, go, those are, depending on the day, those are awesome. Um, As a grandpa, I can honestly tell you that grandkids are awesome all of the time and way better than kids, uh, for sure. So grandkids are awesome. Uh, Friends can be awesome. Uh, You can have an awesome job. I don't know if you do, but maybe you have an awesome, you just go like, I have an awesome job. I love what I do. Uh, Maybe you have an awesome house. Maybe uh, some experience you have had recently, you would just say like, that was just an awesome experience. You know, like I went to to Banff, and I looked at the mountains, and that was, that was awesome. Like, just, just our time there was, was awesome. Or you might look up at the night sky and just go, like, the, the splendor of the universe is awesome. And these are all awesome things. You should have no issue with any of those answers. They are all awesome gifts from God, and we should be grateful for them. And I wonder if, as I asked you that question, like, think of something awesome in your life that some of you might have thought more spiritually and thought about uh, Jesus himself, like some of you probably did, and, um, and he is awesome. I don't, I don't mind that we use the word for other things, but let's just say that Jesus is awesome in the best sense of the word, amen? Jesus is awesome in the best sense of that word. And though we have uh, these scriptural descriptions of Jesus in our hands in the scriptures, and we're going to look at one of those uh, today, though we know the gospel story enough to realize this fact about him, we can still far, fall so far short of really understanding the true holiness, the awesomeness, the splendor of our God. And we want to tr- talk about today, we want to talk about Jesus and his true awesomeness. And that's where we go in these next verses in Revelation chapter 1. These verses take us there as best they can Given the limitations of language, given the limitations of, you know, we're hearing it today in English, it was originally written in Greek, given the limitations of this is actually something that happened 1,900 years ago and being relayed to us, given the limitations of the man, John, who saw this revelation but then had to write it down and now is being passed to us. So it's not even really our experience. But nevertheless, We have in this passage a description of Jesus that is awesome, and that should excite us to the very depth of our souls. And in doing so, in being excited to the depths of our soul, there should also be a call to something greater in our lives as a result of seeing it. You might might say, like, my life is great. I got so many blessings and so many awesome things are happening in my life. But still, it could be better, and hopefully by looking at the Scriptures today and and examining the awesomeness of Christ, we can elevate that to something even greater than what it is now, a greater level of knowledge of our God, a greater uh, sense of devotion to Him, greater service to Him. And so let's turn our attention to the Scriptures. This is the latter part of Revelation 1, uh, starting at verse 9 through to the end of the chapter. I'm going to read this, and we'll get right into it. Revelation 1.9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and in the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in full strength. 
when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right, let's talk about the awesomeness of Jesus. It's in your uh, notes at hbc.info, also on the screen, but let's start with this. Uh, The awesomeness of Jesus meets me where I am. The vision opens really personally. We saw that in verse 9 with John opening with this. I, John, introduces himself, and he calls himself your brother and partner. He uses the really familiar family imagery that's common to the church, and then he also uses the language of partnership, uh, this common enterprise that had been given to all Christians, to the church of Jesus Christ, to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. We know that that's our mission. So he's using both of those languages. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. The family language is there, but also the partnership language. Then he goes on further to mention the very deep connection that we have as followers of Christ, the connection that they were sharing because of their mutual difficulties in fulfilling this mission that had been entrusted to the church and to each of them. He says they're connected, and he mentions three things here. They're connected in tribulation, they're connected in the kingdom, and they're connected in the patient endurance that are in Jesus Christ. Now, he mentions all three of those. It was necessary because the persecution that they were all experiencing as they were attempting to build God's kingdom on earth, as they were spreading the gospel, they were sharing in all of these things. And John's drawing these links with them so that they'll hear this message that he has. It's going to be so encouraging for them to do so. In fact, as I was thinking about this and all that John was, was writing and trying to connect to his readers I thought about this expression, the power of shared experiences, and maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you've done some reading on that, the power of shared experiences. It's really well documented. If you just took that phrase and you, and you search it on Google, you'll find all kinds of articles where people are writing about the power of shared experiences. There are social benefits to shared experiences. There are relational benefits uh, to going through difficulties and challenges together. Families that go through shared experiences can come out feeling much stronger on the other side of it. We know that that's true in work relationships. We know that can be true in nonprofits that you might be involved with. You go through shared experiences. You just feel this camaraderie, this connection with one another. It can happen in friendship. And even, it's kind of trivial, but it even happens on sports teams. When sports teams, when a team will go through a period of, of difficulty, but they come out the other side and they end up winning and they made it through all the diff- the, the adversity that they, that they had faced. And there's the power of a shared experience and they never get over it. And they always talk about that team. And when we uh, uh, came through all of that, there are um, benefits for those who experience warfare. And we're seeing that on the news on a regular basis just now. Those that go through natural disasters come out on the other side with stronger bonds. I, I think of I even think about the city of Boston and the bombing that happened several years ago at the marathon and, and, and then this hashtag, Boston Strong, and I, I think about a city rallying and they, everybody was in the city at that time. I think about New York at 9-11 and people that were in the city at that time and endured all of that. There's a bond that's created. It's the power of shared experiences and that's what John is tapping into here. These early Christians had shared the experience of persecution as they were building what John Stott calls God's new society, and that's what the church is. The church is a new society governed by the principles, not of this world, but of the kingdom of God. This new society called the church exists within the greater society of the entire world, but it's distinct and it's different. And so as they're building this new society, they have these very deep and abiding relationships with one another. 
And um, understanding all of this, um, Buist Fanning wrote this. He's one of the commentators I'm using in this series, but he said this, this tribulation is not merely the annoying problems of life in an imperfect world. Let me pause there for a second and ask you a question. How many people had some kind of annoying problem happen to them this week? Raise your hand. If you had an annoying problem happen to you this week. How many, for how many people the annoying problem is being asked to raise your hand in church just now? You just, you don't like to do that. I would say that probably more than the people that raised their hands, we all probably had something we could look back and say that was an annoying problem. Just something that happened. It's an imperfect world. It happens every single week. But that's not what we're talking about here. This tribulation is not merely the annoying problems of life in an imperfect world. It is it is the trouble that Christians encounter because of their allegiance to Christ in a world set against him. They were suffering specifically because they believed in Jesus and because they were trying to make disciples of all nations. And God's purpose in this, if I could say for a moment, God's purpose in this seems clear to me. That God within, within really as soon as the church was planted in all those first decades experienced such crushing persecution and God knew if they go through this together, they will be far stronger. And this fledgling little church that's starting here in Jerusalem and is going to expand out to the Mediterranean world and then to the entire earth. If it's to have any chance of doing that, it needs to be strong from the start. And the way to make it strong is to put them through an experience that binds them together. And we may look at persecution and go, man, I, I hope I never have to go through something like that. And we know Christians all over the world that are going through stuff like that. And we pray that they would get out of it. And God's going, I think I have a different purpose in mind for this. And that is that they would endure patiently and their hearts would be knit together and they would be temp dependent on me. And at the end of the day, the church is going to be stronger. And that's important for us to realize as we continue to work through this entire book of Revelation, because that's the backdrop to the whole thing. It's being written to people who are suffering incredible persecution. Now, John goes on further to say this. He was on the island called Patmos. We talked about that last week on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's not there on vacation. He's not there because he's retiring there. I mean, he's there because he, he was put there for the gospel. He's not there to share the gospel. It was because he was sharing the gospel that he was put there. So he's in exile. Persecution drove him into exile. And evidently, as you read this, John doesn't seem to be bitter about that. He doesn't seem to be angry at all that he's been put on this rock in the middle of the sea away from any population, away from any ministry. He doesn't seem angry about that. And yet you could understand how maybe he would be. I mean, John had served the Lord faithfully throughout his life. It's generally expected that he was the youngest of the 12 that walked with Jesus. And, and maybe he was uh, in his late teens or, or early 20s, maybe 20 years old when, when he was walking with Jesus um, uh, while Jesus was on earth, part of the 12. Well, that would mean that all these years later, if this book is written as we uh, believe it is in the mid-90s AD or the late 90s, uh, that, that you need to add on another 60 years to his age. So maybe at the, at the youngest, John at this point is in his 80s and probably in his 90s. He's served the Lord all of these years. He's been faithful doing that. And now he finds himself in a lonely and isolated place. Seemingly set aside by circumstances. Because he was preaching the gospel, he gets exiled. But really, we understand that circumstances are under sovereign control of God. And so really, if you want to call it out, John is on Patmos because God wants him there. And if God wants to choose something else for him or wanted to choose something else for him, he would be somewhere else. That God in his sovereignty put John, this aged, faithful apostle, and parked him on a rock of an island away from any ministry away from any place where he could be esteemed. Imagine God could have chosen for him. He could have been part of the church in Ephesus, a fine church, a growing church, a vibrant, a live church. He could have been an esteemed apostle in that church. The people could have cared for him. They could have loved him. That's John. We esteem him. John, it's so great to see you today. He could have had the encouragement of the church there, but no, God chose to put him on Patmos away. He's not bitter. He's not angry about it. 
I struggle with that. If I could just talk about myself for a second, and you can decide if this applies to you in any way, but I often struggle with this gracious way that John is approaching this time of his life and what God had chosen for him. Because the least amount of pressure that comes against the good thing that I have going in my life, and I'm talking to God about it. All of a sudden, that becomes the dominant, the dominant item of prayer when I'm with the Lord. The least amount of alteration of the blessings of God in my life set me off and get me asking him some hard questions. Hey, God, what's up with this? Why, why is this happening to me? Haven't you noticed how I've been serving you faithfully? Don't you notice how I'm living for you? God, why are you making it so hard on me right now? Why aren't you blessing me as, as I think you should be blessing me? And then I step back from it. Seriously, Todd? Are you, Todd, in any way hard done by? No, not in any way. And that rebuke only gets magnified when I consider the plight of people who really do have hard things happening in their lives. I compare my life to them. And then I just want to say, shut up, Todd. Do you want to say it too? No, 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 no. I mean with your name in there. <laughs> we need to accept the place where God has us. And it seems that John did. Because he's, he's still spending time with Jesus. Verse 10 says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Let's start with the fact that it was the Lord's day. It was Sunday. He'd obviously spent some time in the word or he was spending some time in worship. Maybe there were a few other believers around and he had spent some time with them. He's praying. He's spending time with Jesus. And he says, I was in the spirit. Not so much that he had put himself in the spirit, but that the spirit had come upon him. The spirit had filled him and was empowering him in that very moment. So he had himself in a place where the spirit of God could fill him and ready him for this mission that God is going to give to him. And so with that attitude, John's in a place to actually be used by God. So here's what he says, verse 10 continues, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. It's like a trumpet. It's not a trumpet. It's like a trumpet. It's imagery. It's, it's, it's a metaphor, more correctly, a simile. But here's this loud voice that just like booms out, saying, write what you see in a book. So he's been given a mission. We're going to talk more about that later. He's going to write this down in a book. He's going to send it to the seven churches. Let's look at a map. How many people like maps? That doesn't matter. I like maps. So here's, here's a map. Here's a map. Here's the seven churches. There's Turkey, Asia Minor in the, in the, in the Bible, the New Testament, first century, Asia Minor, a province of, um, of Rome, part of the Roman Empire. But the seven churches are all gathered over there in Western Turkey, Ephesus being the, the principal city. Now, there were other cities, by the way, that were bigger cities, more important, more influential cities, but these are the seven. And the reason why is kind of interesting, but if you start at Ephesus, which is the first letter that we have, and the order in which we have the letters is according to a mail circuit or like a postal circuit. So you would start at Ephesus and you would head north to Smyrna, further north to Pergamos, and then you would head down uh, Thyatira, Cyrus, Philadelphia, Laodicea. It was, it was, a, it was a, a route. It was a postal route. I see had a letter that we were going to deliver it would, it would land, especially coming from Patmos, it would, it would land at Miletus, it would head into Ephesus, and then it would start the route. The, the, the letter carrier or the messenger would take it on that particular route. That's why we have those seven cities. That's why we have them in the order that we, that we have them. So there's the map. I showed you a map. And we're going to talk about those seven. That's the topic for the next seven weeks, in fact, is looking at each of those seven letters to those seven churches 
and that's going to be super challenging for us as well. But here's the point. The awesome, it's not just about a map. The awesomeness of Jesus is what it's about, and we're going to see that in a moment. This awesomeness of Jesus met John where he was, and it went to people where they were. John was old. He was in exile. He was seemingly out of the game completely. But none of us, while we're still drawing breath, none of us is ever completely out of the game. Jesus is going to meet you where you are. And so none of us is too sinful to be forgiven. None of us is too rebellious to repent. None of us is, is, is too far gone to not surrender to Jesus. No one has a story that is too awful to turn around. No one is so deep that they cannot be pulled out. God will use anyone, anywhere, at any time. He'll meet you where you are. And all we have to do is have our hearts ready for his work. Be surrendered to his will. Be ready for his spirit to come upon us. To be in the spirit as John, as John was. Stay close to him. Be ready for the call when it comes. And set aside the, the thousands of excuses that you could actually raise, that I could actually raise to respond to him. We are so filled with excuses and instead to respond with joy to the fact that God has a plan for you to affect and impact this world, to use you to accomplish something great or small for his kingdom. And I don't know the definition between great and small because often what we see is that the very smallest things end up resulting in, in, in great fruitfulness for the kingdom of God and some of the things that we think are so great are really just very small and insignificant. I don't know how... God measures all of these things, but only that we would be about the business of the kingdom of God and his mission. And the awesomeness of Jesus Christ drives us there. Here's a second one. The awesomeness of Jesus also stops me in my tracks. It meets me where I am, but it stops me in my tracks. And John was stopped in his tracks. God often does this. He, he, wherever we happen to be, whatever we happen to be doing, boom, he shows up and we're stopped before him. John describes for us the scene in verse 12. Then I turned, he, gets, he hears this booming voice like a trumpet. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, verse 12. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And so he doesn't see Jesus immediately. He doesn't see the, the voice speaking but he sees these seven golden lampstands and they're described in great detail in the Old Testament. There's an allusion here to Old Testament lampstands. It's not the lamp themselves, it's the stands that they're on. We're told later in verse 20, we read this earlier, that these lampstands are the seven churches. Then he continues verse 13, he says this, and in the midst of the lampstands, okay, now he's, now he's seeing the, the one who was speaking. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Son of man, very important phrase, actually comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, if you're taking notes. Son of man, now this is obvious, when you read the vision, you just know, this is the Lord, I mean, this is God. John is looking at God. But when he refers to him as one like a son of man, what he's really saying is, but he looks like a human. He's very human-like, so it's God, but he's very human-like. That's the phrase that we see here. And again, that language comes from Daniel chapter 7. And so it points not to Jesus' humanity, but to his divinity. And we often get this wrong. This was Jesus' favorite expression for himself in the Gospels. He would say, often referring to himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man said this. The Son of Man does this. And he's referring to himself. It would always make the religious leaders crazy whenever he said it. If it was pointing to his humanity, they wouldn't really worry about it. But the religious leaders were so bent out of shape by it because he was always referring to his divinity because they knew Daniel chapter 7. They knew that, what, hey, it's, what he's saying is, you're looking at God, but I look like a man. That's what son of man means. And so John turns around, same thing. He's got the dismay. He looked at one. I saw one like a son of man. It's obviously God, but it looks like a human. Notice the description now. 
actually, before we even get to the description, I, I need to say this, and this is going to help us throughout the whole, entire book of Revelation. We're going to go into a description here of Jesus, eight descriptors of Jesus. And it's really important because some of us are so tempted. We want to get into each of the eight, and we want to, oh, this means this, and this means this, and we want everything to represent something else. We want to lock it all down. And, and, and the problem is that we can't do that because it's so difficult to know what all these things represent. And in fact, some of them may not re represent anything other than awesomeness. Back in uh, college and seminary, I had a professor, mentor, friend, um, and he, he would often say, when you're approaching the, ap uh, the apocalyptic literature and you, you're reading stuff that you, you don't understand and it's so confusing, it's so mysterious and all of this, he says, the point is not to dissect every little part of it and figure it all out and know exactly what it means because that's impossible. He says, instead, what you're supposed to do is let the apocalyptic literature roll over you like a wave of the ocean. So if you can imagine being at the ocean and the breakers are coming in and a wave hits you and knocks you over and it's so refreshing and so clean and, and, and you just feel the overwhelming strength of that wave hitting you, he says, when you're reading Revelation, that's what you should be feeling. Not to precisely understand every bit, but to stand back and go, that was awesome. That's amazing. And I'm overwhelmed by it. My senses are overwhelmed by it. And it, and, it, and it increases, it's increasing my awe of God as I read it. And so as, as we go through this description, let that happen. Just be overwhelmed by it. Let your awe be increased. So here we have, we have one like a son of man, clothed, versus, verse 13 here, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Verse 14, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. And this is a lift, by the way, Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 speaks of the ancient of days, who when you're reading that vision in Daniel 7, you know right away, this is the Lord, this is, this is Yahweh, this is God. When John's seeing it and describing it, and going, this is God, I'm looking at God, this is the description, it's the same description of Daniel's prophecy. And so what he's seeing is a divine vision. He's seeing God, he's seeing the Son of God in his glory. Goes on to say, his eyes were like a flame of fire. Again, like a flame of fire. Metaphor, it's a, it's a descriptor. He's doing the best he can to describe it. It's not, if we were drawing a picture of this, it's not that there's flames of fire coming out of his eyes. This isn't a Marvel movie. Like a flame of fire. I was thinking about this and all these crazy pictures we have of Jesus. You know, maybe you know this one. It's like the most familiar picture of Jesus. And when I'm reading Rev 1, I don't get that, do you? I don't get that. Or this one here, for sure not this one. I mean, I don't even know what that round thing is on his head. And, and, then, and then definitely, definitely not this one. Um, that Jesus is way too white, and I don't know what that thing is in his chest. Anyway, so all, all that to say, so many things I could say about all of this, but that's not Jesus. This, this right here, this is Jesus. This is what we're seeing. Verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And all, all of this is meant to show the awesomeness and the overwhelming power of the one who's not only being described, but he's the one speaking. He's the one delivering this revelation. And so right at the outset, why we have this description it's because the authority of God is being established to relate to us the revelation that we're going to see so that we know the authority is in him and in no one else. Verse 16 goes on, in his right hand, he had seven stars, which in verse 20, we're going to see are the angels or uh, messengers of those uh, seven churches. Uh, we're not uh, completely sure what those are. I'll talk about that in a moment. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Again, imagery that we've seen before. It's not that a sword is coming out of his mouth. Ephesians 6, 17, uh, we have the armor of God, and we're told to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So this is the Word of God coming out of his mouth. Or one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible in, in Hebrews 4, 12. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that's what's happening here. As the word of God proceeds out of the mouth of Jesus, 
as a sword. It is fulfilling Isaiah 11:4, and we're seeing the vindication of God come on the earth. We're seeing the judgment of God come down, his justice being meted out in the world, a world that's filled with injustice. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength, which we all know because we went to school and there were days with solar eclipses, we were always told, don't look at the sun, don't look at the sun, because it'll burn your eyes out. And his face is like that. How would, if it was you hearing the voice, turning around and seeing this, how would you respond? Like the first word that comes to my mind is terror. Is that what comes to your mind? It should stop us in our tracks. I mean, if you're, if you're sitting here and you're hearing this description and you have the word of God's being read here and, and we're trying to understand it, we're trying to picture Jesus in this way. And if you're sitting here with some ho-hum attitude about all of this, I not only feel sorry for you, but I'm a little fearful for you. I I just don't think you can approach something like this in a ho-hum way, cavalier way, an oh-isn't-that-interesting kind of way. It's not interesting. It's devastating to the way we think we ought to live our lives. John responds with terror. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Boom. Fell down. Moses had this experience, seeing just the veiled passing, barely a glimpse of the glory of God. The apostle Paul would talk about it for the rest of his life, how deeply it impacted and changed him. Isaiah, for his part, was ushered into the throne room of God. And when he got there, Isaiah 6, 5 says, he says, woe is me, for I am lost. Another translation says, I'm undone. I'm coming apart at the seams. For I am a man of unclean lips. I'm, I'm sinful. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. But my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He saw what John is describing. Do you have any sense of that in your life? Anything? Does Jesus move the needle at all for you? Does the thought of him cause any excitement? Were you eager to get with God's people today to worship him and to hear his word? Does your approach to him include fear and awe? The hard questions, most of us would, would struggle to answer yes to them. Because everything in this life wars against us getting to that place. Our own flesh is so very selfish. We want what we want. We want what pleases us. We know, and especially as we read the book of Revelation, we're going to see it again. We're engaged. There's a spiritual warfare going on, and the evil one is warring against us every minute of the day. And beyond our flesh and the devil, there's a world system that hates you, that is in full operation every moment of your life. Again, this is God's new society. This represents the kingdom of God. And the moment you walk out the doors, get in your car and drive off the, uh, out of the parking lot and off into the city, you are entering into the world, a world that hates you. A world that does not want you living for Jesus Christ or knowing one more thing about him and certainly doesn't want you engaging in his mission. Don't think the world loves you. 
Don't think it even likes you. Don't think that the world is for you or providing you with anything. It's all a lie. The world wants to destroy you. That's why God has given us the church. The world wants to pull you away from any experience of Jesus. And so it sends to us, it doesn't come right out necessarily and say, all the thing you're doing is bad. It doesn't even need to make a comment about that. The world just sends us countless distractions. Things that will pull us away. We love, we love all the technology we have. We celebrate all the new technology that is provided to us. We get all the new technology and we go, life is so much easier. Does anybody really think the technology is easier? You know, we got new appliances a couple of weeks ago. They have Wi-Fi. Why? It was a day and age. You ordered a stove. It came. You took the burner on. You put water on there. It boiled. Now they're Wi-Fi connected. How do we think our life is easier? I don't know. But it sends all these distractions, all this technological progress, smart TVs, smart homes. I mean, if you want your house to be a little warmer right now, some of you can just get on your phone and tell your house to be warmer. House, be warmer. And it will. Some of you can, can you, some of you will know if someone, if Amazon arrives to your front door while you're here, you're going to know about it. You're going to get an alert. You're going to get a picture of the, of the driver. You're going to see where you put your box. We've so increased the distraction, increased all the technology. Our computers, the internet, social media, it's all distraction. Our phones. But the progress, listen, the progress more often than not is simply increasing the distractions that keep us from the awe of God. And the sort of progress we're making is actually progress away from God. We're making progress into deeper distraction. So here's a thought for this week. Look at Jesus the way you look at your phone. Try that this week. Look at Jesus the way you look at your phone. So John, in this moment, he's he's laid out. In the presence of God, he's, he's like a dead man in, in the face of the blazing beauty of Christ. But then, notice what it says, but he, Jesus, laid his right hand on me. That's right hand is the right hand of power. Sorry, lefties. The, the right hand of power. Jesus says, fear not. John's, John, you don't need to be afraid of me because, because you're mine. John, there are people who need to be afraid of me, but not you. Because you belong to me. And he assures him, he says, I'm the first and the last. I'm I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the alpha and the omega. I'm God. I started all of this and I'm going to bring it to an end. Verse 18, and he says, and I'm the living one. And here's where, because John could easily miss it at this point. But here's where he assures him that he's Jesus. Because he says, I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. I'm, I'm Jesus, John. You walked with me for three years. You were there when I was crucified. You were standing there with my mom. Remember the conversation we had when I asked you to take care of her? You saw me die. And then you were in the upper room when I was resurrected and I appeared to you. Jesus. So be comforted. And who thinks after hearing that? Who, who thinks that's awesome? Do you think that's awesome? 
Does it stir something inside of you? We should be stopped in our tracks by that. Just reading it and seeing what John went through, that should stop us in our tracks as well. So the awesomeness of Jesus meets me where I am, stops me in my tracks. And then notice this third, finally, determines the course of my life. Is Jesus alone determining the course of your life? John is told here what his very specific task is to be, verse 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. And in, in that verse, we see the, the threefold division which forms a breakdown of the literary approach to Revelation. And so Jesus is kind of laying out for him, here's how I want you to actually structure this book when you get to writing it. So in fact, let me go through each of these for you. The literary approach of the book of Revelation, as outlined here in verse 19, chapter one of Revelation is the things that you have seen. Okay, that's what he said in verse 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. Well, what he saw was Jesus right there. And so he wrote that, chapter one. Then he says, those that are, things that are happening right now in real, continuously happening here at this particular moment, in this particular moment of, of history, the latter part of the first century, that's chapters two and three. That's the seven letters that we have. And then he says, those that are to take place after this, that's chapters four through 22, that's all stuff that hasn't happened yet that, that we're going to look at, that we're waiting for. A lot of commentators see the breakdown of Revelation here, and it fits beautifully, and it's, it's, it's really interesting to see it in this way, but it's not precisely, not completely. Yes, it reflects a partial truth about this, but not completely. Because there's overlap in all of these sections, something we talked about last week, that as we approach the book of Revelation, we need to understand what we're reading. That in fact, we have partial fulfillments of many of the prophecies that we see. We talked last week of reading a prophecy and, and seeing, you know what, that looks like that happened in the past already. That happened in the Old Testament, or that happened with the coming of Christ, or that happened in the last 1900 years, and it's not future, but then I kind of see how there still might be a future part of it. And so what we have in all of that is multiple partial fulfillments prior to the ultimate fulfillment. If Marvel's releasing a new movie on July 17th of 2022, before we get to July 17th, multiple trailers are going to be released online, going to play at the movie theaters. You're going to get little glimpses, little shots of what's going to happen in that movie when it comes out in full release. Musical artists will often drop a part of a song or one song out of an album before the full album comes to us. Here's a little teaser. Here's a little something that's going to whet your appetite, that's going to get you curious, that's going to keep you interested, that's going to have you there on release date to download the songs, download the album. That's what we have. God's giving us little teasers, little trailers, little snippets, little bits of what's going to happen in the ultimate fulfillment that we read in chapters 4 through 22. And in addition to that, we think just of Revelation 2 and 3 in these seven letters of seven churches. These letters are not simply about those seven churches in Western Turkey. They're about us now. We're going to see really in those seven letters, they represent what's going on in the church today in all kinds of churches, things that are happening in this church. And we're going to read rebukes and exhortations to us as a church in those seven letters. And so as we work through the book, we're going to be asking, what is it about this verse or this passage, as we look at it, something that already happened, something that is happening, or something has, that has yet to happen? And that's very important three questions as we examine all of the book of Revelation. And so what's happening here is John, and that is to say really the Holy Spirit, is giving us the method of interpretation in this intro to the book. And he gives us a little glimpse of that. 
with a very specific interpretation of verse two, verse 20, rather, right at the end of the passage. Because we had these two symbols that we saw earlier, the seven stars and the seven lampstands. And so he says to us, here's a little, here's a little inter- interpretation for you. The seven stars, he says, are the angels of the seven churches. Now, I find that explanation to be slightly limited and, and unsatisfying because I still don't know what the angels are. I did a little reading on that. There are a lot of commentators who say that this is actually an angel, like actually an angel, a spiritual being angel, and that every local church has its own angel. So like there's a Harvest Bible Chapel angel. That's kind of cool. That's at church today, you know, watching over the church. I mean, that could be. I don't know if that's the deal. There are some people who see this as the angel because it's the Greek word angelos, and it was just transliterated into English. We just took the Greek word and brought it into English, but that the Greek word actually means messenger. So there are those who believe that this reference to the seven angels is really a reference to the lead pastors of those churches that I know many of you think of me in that way. (laughs) That was way too fast (laughs) and way too loud. but very funny. <laughs> Anyways, we'll look at that. I don't, the mystery isn't really cleared up. And then the seven lampstands, very clear, the seven churches. But he still uses the word here, mystery, to describe the whole thing. And that's something very appropriate because I think it's still something that is mysterious to us in a lot of ways. And there's much of revelation, even at the end of this series, we're going to go, that still seems very mysterious to us. And of course, the, mystery, the, 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 the word mystery actually is something you would not otherwise know apart from it being revealed to you. And God is revealing as much as he wants us to have. Now, as we think again, how this compels us into ministry, no one here is called to this kind of work that John's being called to. This is capital A, apostolic, John, I want you to write scripture. No one's getting called to that today. Nevertheless, John is modeling what one commentator called, and I I love these two phrases, John is modeling stunned astonishment and reverent submission. In fact, the stunned astonishment that John has drives him toward the reverent submission that he has in saying yes to Jesus. And in that, in those two things, we can imitate John completely. We can have stunned astonishment and we can have reverent submission to whatever he's called us to do. So the question to the professing Christians who are hearing my voice right now is this. Is the awesomeness of Jesus determining the course of your life? Is that Is that what's deciding the course of your life? You see, because Jesus, it has to be Jesus who decides this, and it can't be Jesus as an add-on. Jesus is not an add-on to anything or anyone. Jesus is not some upgrade to your base software. Jesus is, Jesus is not a hobby. Jesus is in, in, this, in the pie that represents, the pie chart that represents the priorities of your life. Jesus is not a slice of the pie. Jesus is like no other. And we've heard three times already in chapter one that he is the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, that everything starts with him and everything ends with him. And everything in between is him. We read this stunning description that John provides us. We read through that and we should be in awe of that. And and do you have any sense as you read that, that that sounds like someone who's okay being a side chick? Do you think Jesus is okay being your side chick? Am I using that phrase correctly, Jordan? Does that sound right? Jesus doesn't want to be your side chick. So the entire course of your life determined by Jesus. 
All of your time determined by Jesus. All of your money, all of it, every penny decided by Jesus. All of your friendships, all of your work, what career you go into, how you spend your working life, all of your priorities, all of it. In light of the awesomeness of Jesus Christ, he decides all of it. And when you think about how awesome it is to serve the awesome Savior of the world, none of these things should matter anyway. In light of the awesome revelation that John was given, the, the, the vision that he had of the Son of Man, he fell down as though dead, and nothing else in his life mattered in that moment. And we need to live that way now. In fact, all of these other things will fall away as unimportant in light of the awesomeness of Jesus and beyond unimportant, uninteresting. How in the world could the distractions that are put in front of me matter at all when I focus completely on the awesomeness of Jesus? They're just uninteresting. They don't hold me at all. Because the awesomeness of Jesus has seized, seized me and determined the course of my life and for your sake, I hope that that's what you desire. I hope that that's what you're pursuing. Nothing but the awesomeness of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, uh, so uh, grateful for your kindness toward us. And uh, Father, the obvious patience that you have for us as we struggle with so many things, so many distractions, Father, as we fail often so completely to recognize your awesomeness and to allow that to change our lives. And so, Father, we, we put this in, in front of you today to do a deep work in each one of our lives, to change us and transform us as you did, John. Father, if necessary, Lay us out flat. Call us to something greater, greater. Use us for the purposes of your kingdom to proclaim your gospel in this world. So Father, we surrender ourselves to you for these things. Holy Spirit, work in each one of our lives, we pray. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.